If you've got a Bible, I'd encourage you to turn to the book of Acts. We're going to finish the first chapter today. And as Jason said, the the disciples are down a man. We're going to get to understand that a little bit more. But I want to remind us of what Jesus has been teaching about. His, his whole earthly ministry, and even in uh, the book of Acts after his r- resurrection, what was he teaching? He was teaching about the kingdom of God. He was telling people how to be a part of that, when it's coming, what it looks like, how to, how to be involved in it. Uh, he just, he, he keeps teaching about it. There's nothing really that new or revolutionary here. He's just saying the kingdom is here. He's the king of the kingdom, right? And uh, the king is not dead. That, that was what his resurrection was really proving. He's not dead. He is alive. His kingdom is alive and well because the king is alive and well. And so he's explaining to his kingdom, the people in it, uh, specifically this, this special group who are right at the forefront of it, he's explaining to them what it's going to look like, what they have to do. And remember, he said, go and wait. The thing that we all love to do, right? He said, go and wait for the Spirit. Um, the, just, I just want to revisit the ascension of Jesus just really briefly before we move into the text today because I think there's some important things that we didn't quite get a chance to shake out of it last week. So three things I just want to point out. Some of the effects of the ascension of Jesus. N- number one, it was the... What, the best word I could think of was a prelude to the sending of the Spirit in Jerusalem just days away. Jesus said in his earthly ministry, we read this in John last week, he said that it's actually better that I go because when I do, the Helper will come. Not just to take his place, but to, to dwell within his people. And so the ascension was kind of the prelude, prelude to that. Number two, the ascension of Jesus is the foundation of, of Christian mission. Because he, he said, go into all the world. Preach the good news. Make disciples. This is the, the biggest message that he's giving to his people. Go. Be on mission. And, and, and lastly, it's, it's the pledge and the promise of Christ's imminent return. Like that's going to happen. That's at the very end of the, our text from last week. You can see verse, uh, 10 says that the angel is speaking to the men. He says, Jesus will come again in the same way as you saw him go up into heaven. He's coming again. This, this is a huge implication that I don't want to pass over quickly. He's coming again. In the same way, you can, you can reference multiple passages that talk about Jesus coming back on the clouds. It's coming. We can have hope in that. We can have confidence in that. And I think that plays into some of the hope and confidence that the disciples and apostles have in what they do in replacing Judas's, uh, or finding Judas's replacement. I learned something this week though that I wanted to share with you guys because I thought it was really interesting. There are, in the New Testament, there are three times that Jesus is recorded to have, um, have, have cried, have shed tears. Okay? Uh, Luke records him, um, weeping over Jerusalem during the triumphal entry situation. 
He sheds tears. He's looking over Jerusalem and and he's weeping for them. He cried. You probably remember shortest verse in the Bible uh, when Lazarus had died. It says Jesus wept in that situation in Bethany. He's on the slopes of the Mount of Olives. The author of Hebrews in chapter 5 verse 7 says that Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane and as he did, he wept. All of those three times that Jesus is recorded to have, have cried, they were, he was always on the mountain. He was, each time he was on the Mount of Olives is what it's called. Now I don't know that there's a whole lot of significance to that except what I want to point out and the cool thing is, is this. Where did he ascend from? The Mount of Olives. So the mountain where he cried the most, the mountain of his tears ended up being the mountain of victory, right? Because that's where he went back to be in heaven to rule and to reign. So in view of all of this, Jesus Christ by his followers is finally understood as the conquering king. Now they, he's risen from the dead. They weren't quite sure what the kingdom was going to look like just yet. They asked a question last week we talked about, kind of revealed that. Um, and he said, they said, hey, are you going to finally restore Israel? And he said, that's none of your business. Here is your business. Go, pray, teach, take this life-giving message of salvation to the people that need it. His kingdom is finally kind of understood. Uh, the Greek scholar I was reading this week, William Larkin, said this, The fact that the Great Commission is the last instruction of the risen, now ascended Lord gives it great weight. He's not mentioning an optional ministry activity for individuals with cross-cultural interests or churches with surplus funds. The Great Commission is the primary task the Lord left his church. We can see... In verse 12 of chapter 1, that the disciples are eager to obey Christ's commands. They do it. They listen to the angel's instructions. They, They start going about the business that Jesus gave them to do. And most recently, remember, he told them to do what? To wait. To go to Jerusalem and to wait. So let's, we're going to pick up the story there. Verse 12, and we'll read through the end of the chapter and pray. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas, the son of James. All these, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers, the company of persons was in all about 120, and said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus, for he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry." Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all his bowels gushed out. 
And it became known to all the inhabitants of Israel so that the field was called in their own language Akeldama, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, May his camp be desolate, let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office. Verse 21. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, Show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. Let's pray. Lord, we are often faced with what we might consider important and challenging decisions just like the disciples were here. They demonstrated a great amount of faith, though, in how they made these decisions. And so I pray that we might learn from them, but also to see, Lord, your hand throughout all of this, the thread of your sovereignty going through even the betrayal of of Jesus and now into finding his replacement and into the beginning of the church and seeing the gospel go out starting in Jerusalem and then out to the ends of the earth. Lord, we are still called and still a part of that great fulfillment. We are still taking the gospel to those close by and those far away. And so I pray for those close by who need to hear this message, that they might hear it from the membership of Ramsey Creek clearly and boldly, regularly, both with what we say and also in how we live that Jesus and his name might be glorified among all, above all. In his name we pray, amen. So if you look back at Luke's gospel, his account of this situation is that they, the disciples do head back to Jerusalem, but he mentions that they go back with great joy. All right, so I want us to keep that picture in our mind. They're, they're standing there on the Mount of Olives with Jesus he ascends into heaven, their, their, their mouths are hanging open, looking up at the sky, and two angels say, what are you doing? He's not here anymore. He'll come again, but he's not here now. Go do what you're supposed to do. And so they go, and they go with great joy. They've, joy is one of the primary motivating factors that Christians have in taking the gospel to the nations. Please don't forget that, because if you operate outside of joy, if you are a grumpy Christian, people are going to remember your grumpiness more than your message. Don't be a grumpy Christian. Somebody should make that a t-shirt or something. That sounds really great. Don't do that. I'm kidding. Uh, But they go with great joy. They leave, they go to Jerusalem, Um, they're continually blessing the Lord, the, the passage here says, and they gather together in an upper room to do what? pray. They go to pray. It says that they were with one accord, then they devoted themselves to prayer. And so it won't come as any surprise to you 
But when tough decisions need to be made, there are two really important things to consider. And they're found right here. We see them right in this text in Acts chapter 1. Verse 14, first thing, pray. Second thing, verse 16, look to the scriptures. Pray. Prayer and scripture, these are the things we need to consider when decisions have to be made. So Peter gets up in the midst of of 120-ish people, and he begins to encourage, and he begins to lead the church. Now think about who Peter is. It wasn't that many days prior to this that he's sitting around a fire denying he even knows Jesus' name. Right, cursing at the the people that are saying, I thought you were with him. He's saying, no, I had no part in that. And now he's the first guy to get up and to start encouraging and leading and preaching God to God's people. Isn't it just like God to work through folks like this? I mean, we're going to see the story of Paul started as Saul, and we're going to see how God does the same thing there. He uses someone who's, who's opposed to the message, who's opposed to God, and he flips him around and turns him into an incredible messenger of the gospel, of hope. And Peter is the same way. He stands up and he, he reminds everyone to look back to scripture. He directs them specifically to the Psalms, which he says were inspired by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of David. And he connects Psalms to Judas, to their current situation. Specifically, and you can jot this down, Psalm 69, Psalm 109. Those are what he quotes from. And both of these Psalms lament people that betray a good friend. Okay, they're talking about betrayal. Treacherous people. The people in these Psalms rejected specifically the friendship and kingship of David. And so Peter now takes that those stories from the Old Testament and he applies them to Judas, who effectively refused the friendship and kingship of Jesus Christ. Okay, and that's the correlation that he makes. There's a really good chance that the disciples and those who loved Jesus were still confused about what happened with Judas. Could, could you imagine? This guy had been with them for years. He'd held the money box. And now all of a sudden, for 30 pieces of silver, he betrays who they now know to be the king of the universe. So you could imagine there were still maybe some shock and awe amongst those people. I mean, it... Peter himself says that Judas was numbered among them. He had a share or a part in their ministry. This was this was hard to swallow. It seems like what he did kind of ca- caught him off guard. So Peter, pulling from his knowledge of the scriptures, begins to make sense of it, both for himself and for the group. What is what does he say in verse uh, sixteen? He says, "Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled." So he he starts explaining and making sense of this, and he points out something that I think we need to hear. And it's this. For them specifically, he starts to point out that what might be confusing for them 
is actually part of God's unfolding plan. Now, I'm sure many of you can apply that kind of feeling in your own life right now. There may be something confusing happening. And I want us to see today, just on the application side of this, how sometimes what's confusing for us is actually still part of God's unfolding plan. And you don't have to look very hard in Scripture to see this kind of thing evidenced. I think back to Joseph, right? Sold into slavery by his brothers, and in the end, God works it out, and Joseph recognizes what you guys meant for evil, God intended for good. What was confusing for probably a lot of years for Joseph was actually part of God's unfolding plan that he didn't see till later. And Peter's making, the, he's connecting the dots here for himself and for the early believers. And for his betrayal of Jesus, Judas got paid. He got paid. He got what the chief priests in that day called blood money. Literally called blood money. That was the name of the field. Um, so a couple of explanatory things I want to talk about with Judas just real quick. Um, so either with that money, he either purchased a field prior to his death, presuming on getting that money, or the chief priests, after Judas came and threw the money back at their feet, took the money and bought a field Either way, what Judas earned for his treachery bought a field. Okay, that's really what I'm, I'm trying to explain to you. And that field was called, came to be known as the field of blood because that's what we, where we believe that Judas killed himself. Um, Judas died there. Uh, Matthew, Matthew's account, uh, just to avoid confusion, Matthew's account says that out of remorse, uh, not necessarily out of true repentance, Judas hung himself. Now, Peter gets up, uh, Luke records, and he says that in a very graphic way that his he fell and his body burst open and his insides came out. So, how did Judas die? Was it a hanging or was it something else? Why? Well, question I, I asked myself was, I've fallen down and my insides didn't, come out. So there's something else going on in that. When somebody falls down there, they usually don't burst open like Peter says. So I think probably what makes a lot of sense here is a combination of the two. It's a, a harmony of these two stories. It's that Matthew's right. In his despair, Judas hung himself. And after his body had been out there probably for some days, the rope, the, the, the branch that held him broke and his body fell. And in that state, it burst open and that's what Peter says. So my question is not necessarily how he died or that sort of thing. I think we can really make some sense of that. Really, the, the question that sticks out to me is why did Peter talk about it in such graphic and kind of gory detail? Because he doesn't just say Judas killed himself. Like, he goes into a lot more detail here. That's my question, is why would he do that? I think the answer's already been given, and it's this. To betray the king of the universe is a horrific thing. It's a terrible thing. So Peter, 
I assume, did not want to, sh- to, to shed any light on this that had any positive nature to it. To betray Jesus was a terrible thing, and it came out in not only how Judas died, but in how it was talked about after the fact. And I tend to think that this all really hit home for Peter harder than anybody. Why? Again, just days before this, he was guilty of almost the exact same thing as Judas, guys. He betrayed Jesus Christ. Now, were it not for the prayers of Jesus and the grace of God, Judas may have, or Peter rather, may have had a very similar fate to Judas. And so he gets up and he, I tend to believe, as pastors often do, when we're preaching to ourselves a lot of times, if you didn't understand that. And I think Peter's getting up and he's reminding himself of what God's grace has saved him from. He's saying, this could have been me. And so when things were unsettling, as this obviously is, Peter doesn't go to his feelings. He doesn't go to, he doesn't ask and pull the audience for opinions. What does he do? He goes to the word of God to make sense of this unsettling situation, he goes to the word of God, he goes back to the Psalms. And that's when answers start to come. And I I think we could say that properly applied, as we see it done here, God's word provided the proper interpretation and also the proper perspective on these confusing and shocking events. Not only do the Psalms help the disciples understand the situation with Judas better, but it helped them understand how to move forward in their search for leadership and who was going to take his spot. For a, a good Jew, the number 12 was, was significant. Okay, uh, you probably make the correlation, the 12 sons of Jacob, the 12 tribes of Israel. Uh, the number 12 was pretty important. It, uh, for, for Peter, it probably, he probably felt like it needed to be restored. The, the number 12 needed to be uh, restored back so that way when they go and take the gospel to the nation, specifically starting in Jerusalem with Jews, that both in what they share and in who they are, it's this completeness to it. And so the number 12 was significant in that way. It was important to these Jewish believers. And so in order to find a replacement, Peter, he, he lays out qualifications. You can look at verse 21 and 22. There's really three qualifications for the new member who was going to take Judas's spot. Number one, uh, he had to have been with them since John baptized them. So it's a long time, three years or so. Number two, he had to have stayed with them throughout Jesus' earthly ministry. And the third one is he had to have personally seen the resurrected Jesus. Okay, you see those from the text. Those are the three things. So it's it's I think it's fair to say that the man who they were trying to put in this place or hoping for in this place to join with the other eleven would be like them, uniquely suited for this role. And I I think it's um, it's important to understand this because they're not adding more after this twelve because. After these guys were gone and, and, and dead, no one else fit these qualifications, right? So I think it's important here to kind of pause and reflect on the situation again. 
why were these disciples bold enough to make a decision like this? Remember, Jesus is gone. He's not there to give them direction. The Holy Spirit has not yet been poured out among them. What gave them boldness to make an important decision like this? Well, again, I think the answer has already been stated. They were convinced from the word of God as what God wanted, as what God said. And Peter points out from the Psalms how it would go. He said, he talks about betrayal and he talks about replacement, substitution. Another will take his place is what he quotes. Another will take his office. Okay. If you, if you think back the betrayal aspect of this, I think that helps us see the replacement a little bit better too. If, if you can jot this down in your notes, first Samuel 21 and 22. This is the story of David and a guy who he thought was on his side named Doeg. I think I'm saying that right. D-O-E-G. Okay. And Doeg sees David and his, and his mighty men and he tattles to Saul, King Saul, about it. Saul doesn't like David, wants him dead at this point. And he tattles to Saul about where David is. And as a result, Doeg goes and kills 85 priests of God. Um, King Saul tells his army to do it, and they say, we can't do that, because they have some amount of sense still. But Doeg says, okay, I'll do it. And he goes and he kills 85 priests, and then he gives instruction for the rest of the army, and they lay the whole city to the sword. Hundreds of people die as a result of Doeg's betrayal. Of David. And so you could probably imagine Psalm uh, 69, I believe, is one that you could probably see David writing about this situation. And if you look through that psalm and think about that in your head, it would make a lot of sense. When, when he was betrayed, David desired that the betrayer, as what's quoted here by Peter, is that his camp would be desolate. No one would dwell in a Doeg's house, I think is who he's talking about. And then that his office would be filled, that someone would take his place. And it's the same here in Acts chapter 1. Peter's desire isn't only, I think, for an even number of 12, although that number is significant. I think his real desire underneath it all is for the will of God to be done. That's what I think is the biggest part of this. These believers... We're concerned with the will of God and how the gospel was going to advance out of here. They knew it was going to happen through them. Jesus was very clear about this, but they didn't have all of the details just yet. The Holy Spirit would come. Jesus talked about the comforter, but they didn't really know what that was going to mean, what that was going to look like. And they, they knew though that it would be starting in Jerusalem and they, with the Jews. And so 12, the number 12 was important there. And so they took what they knew from the word of God to be true, and then they acted in light of the advancement of the gospel. Let me say that again, because I think that's helpful for us in some of the decisions that we need to make in life. They took what they knew from the word of God, and they acted in light of the advancement of the gospel. Would, would the advancement of the kingdom be advanced or hindered by what they were going to do? Now, I don't think all of this text is just about us learning how to make good decisions. 
I don't think that's all of it, but I think that's certainly a part of it. And what would it look like if we started evaluating things in our life, maybe with more of this criteria? What, if I go see this movie with my family, what would this potentially do for the advancement of the gospel? If, if people see me at the theater watching this possibly bad movie, what would that do for my witness? People saw me involving myself with this kind of hobby, pastime. What would that do? Would that hinder or would that advance the gospel message? Look, life is full of tough decisions. We know this. Uh, who are we going to marry? What career are we going to pursue? Where are we going to live? What kind of house are we going to buy? Are we going to have two cars? Are both of us parents going to work? Are we going to homeschool our kids? Are we going to public school our kids? Who are we going to be friends with? What church should we be a part of? Life is full of important and hard decisions. And some of them have really clear parameters already laid out in Scripture. Right? Who are we going to marry? Well, Scripture is pretty clear. You should marry someone who loves Jesus. You shouldn't marry someone who doesn't love Jesus. Who should you be friends with? Well, you should be friends with people who practice godliness, right? Not who are running after worldly things. The Bible's pretty clear on a lot of these things. But sometimes people, and I would actually say even Christians, spend way too much time asking all the wrong questions. Should I leave my spouse because I'm unhappy? Should I join a church? Should I try to talk about Jesus to my coworkers at my job? Should I lie in this particular situation? So those are the wrong questions, aren't they? They're the wrong questions because they're already clearly answered in God's word. God has revealed his will clearly about those kinds of things. You're not supposed to lie. You shouldn't leave your spouse. You shouldn't, uh, you should rather talk about Jesus in your place of work. These are all things that are pretty clear from scripture. He's revealed his will in a lot of these things. And, but sometimes when we're looking for answers about decisions that we have to make regarding something that's maybe not clearly revealed in scripture, our, our decision-making process can start to break down a little bit. We might even be so concerned with trying to find out the will of God in the difficult areas of life that we just completely ignore his revealed will in other areas of life. Is, the, is it the will of God for us to pursue holiness and no longer live according to the flesh? Is it the will of God for Christians to dwell together in unity and community, is it God's for will for you to be involved in disciple-making? Yeah. All of those things are the will of God clearly revealed in his word. Well, here's the real hard question then. And I don't think it's unfair. Why would we expect God to reveal to us what house to buy, what career to pursue, who to marry, if we're not at all interested about those other things first? If we're not interested in living a life of holiness, then will God reveal his, his will to us in some other way that we feel like we need it to be revealed in? 
Now, certainly sometimes he does. But I think the point remains. Do you just want the answer to your question or do you want to really glorify God? The believers in Acts chapter 1, it would seem, they wanted to glorify God. And so they, they operated according to what they knew of his will and his word. So some things for us, we don't need, we don't need to consider or wonder whether we should love or honor our spouses or be humble or live lives of holiness or love our neighbors or care for orphans or if we should pray or if we, if we should preach the gospel. Those things are all things that are clearly revealed in God's word for his people to do. We can be confident in pursuing them that that is always the right direction. And so in Acts chapter 1, for the disciples and apostles here and for us today, the primary place for discovering the will of God is in the pages of Scripture. I don't hear any amens. I was really hoping to hear some right there. <laughs> Let's try it again. The primary place for discovering the will of God is in the pages of Scripture. Amen. Great. You passed. Christians ought to give priority to the clearly revealed will of God in the Bible. There are lots of hard decisions to be made. Some of them aren't as cut and dry as we would like. But here's where we start every time. Remember, what were the two things that they did right away? Prayer and Scripture. When you're facing a hard decision, let's at least start there, right? Go to prayer Go to the scriptures. We ought to give priority to the clearly revealed will of God found in his word. Again, I don't think this story is only about how to find God's will. But I think it should certainly inform us about how we make decisions in view of God's unfolding plan in the world. Remember, for these disciples, it would seem that the primary uh, concern here was taking the gospel to the Jews in Jerusalem. Because that's what Jesus initially said right here before he ascended, right? Go and wait for the Spirit to come, then you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem first. That was, that was in their head. That's what they were going to be doing. That was their primary concern. Now, the word apostle here simply means one who is sent. That's the literal definition of the word apostle. And so these men would be sent out with the message of the risen and glorified Savior. Of Jesus. They were confident that they should replace Judas, but God didn't tell them the name of the person, did He? He didn't go and call them like He did the twelve initially. There was some decision making that they had to do on their own here. And so they, these believers, they took what they clearly knew from the Word of God with the advancement of the gospel in mind, and then they sought wisdom from other believers. This is important too. Look at verse 23. They, they put forth two guys, Joseph, um, which was also sometimes, who's also some kind of, it's called Justice, and Matthias. And they, they put them forth to the group. It wasn't just a certain number, it was to the group, and they, they put them out before them. They put them forward, Clearly these men, these two men specifically, would have fit the criteria of those three things that Peter had already laid out. And then what did they do? 
they prayed again. So prayer is pretty key here. You notice it starts with prayer, and now we're praying again for the will of God to be seen and obeyed and done. They prayed for wisdom. They prayed for direction. They admitted to the Lord. They said, Lord, you know the hearts of all. And you can imagine by omission, they're saying, we don't know. We can't see in these guys' hearts, but you can. And so make a, help us make this decision. They prayed that God would make it clear who should take Judas's place. And I, I just got to believe, we talked about this at Vacation Bible School just a few weeks ago, Samuel going to anoint David and all the sons of Jesse go before him. And he says, it's none of these guys. And God had already told Samuel, he said, remember, you look at the, the outside, I look at the heart. And so I, I think that's in their minds as they're praying this prayer to the Lord. I don't think Joseph or Justice, I don't think he was a bad guy. He was numbered among them. He was with them. He fit all those criteria. I don't think he was a bad guy, but these disciples knew who knew the best. God did. And so they said, we need you to help us. Because the Spirit had not yet come to dwell within them to help them make these kinds of decisions, they went with the pattern that they were used to using when making important decisions. You can see it in the last verse there. They cast lots. This was a fairly common practice for Jews. Um, if Just a couple of instances that I'll remind you of. In the book of Numbers, God actually instructed them to cast lots when they were dividing the land up. In 1 Chronicles 24, when workers are being arranged in different places for the temple, they cast lots to see who would go where. Probably remember when Jonah was on the ship and it was in a great storm. The sailors, in that, this case, you probably didn't know the Lord, uh, they cast lots to see who was it, which one of us was causing this problem. And then you'll probably remember too, at the crucifixion, the Roman soldiers cast lots for Jesus' clothes. When we talk about casting lots, what do we think of? We think of rolling the dice, right? And we're, we don't exactly know what the casting of lots meant, if it was sticks of different sizes, if it was rocks with different things carved in them like a dice. We're, we're not totally sure. I don't know that it actually matters. For us, it looks like a game of chance, right? Where there's no rhyme or reason at all, like rolling dice or flipping a coin. But Proverbs 16.33 says, The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. Okay. So I, I don't think the idea here is that we should, in making decisions, just throw a dice. I don't think that's what is, is happening here. People who believed God, like these disciples did, they believed that God was sovereign, they would cast lots as a way of committing the decision to him. They believed that he would guide them through the outcome. Now, this method of casting lots doesn't seem all that spiritual to us. I get it. But they were still relying on the Lord in a way that had not really been used before. Or, I'm sorry, that had been used before. They, they were going to what they knew. We've done it this way before. God's instructed it. Let's, let's do it this way because we trust the Lord with the outcome. Now, I do want to point out, though, 
that you don't see anybody casting lots to decide anything after this. That this is it. All throughout the rest of the New Testament, you, you don't see people casting lots. And I think the reason is because they have the Spirit of God. Because the Spirit gets poured out on them. You don't need to cast lots anymore. You don't need to flip a coin to make a decision. The Holy Spirit is the counselor who helps God's people make wise decisions. That's the reason why you don't see it again. What well, says in the text that the lot fell on Matthias and he was numbered with the 11 apostles. Now, some would argue that since we never hear about Matthias again, this was a poor decision that they messed up and that Paul should have been the next apostle who was considered in that spot. Um, and yet, besides really Peter and John, you don't hear any of the names listed here again. Andrew, Bartholomew, uh, James, Philip, Thomas, Philip we do, but a lot of these you don't hear about again. So I don't know that that's a good uh, metric to use. Paul, in 1 Corinthians 15, he just considers himself an apostle. He says, I'm an, uh, an apostle born out of due time, and he doesn't seem to have any problem with Matthias being included with them. So we've got our 12. The group is now ready for what we know is coming next in Acts chapter 2. And this is where it really starts to get exciting, guys. Really starts to get exciting. Before we move into that next week, let me just recap a little bit this week. There's, there's a lot we can learn here about making decisions. And we're all faced with them, and so I think there's a lot of helpful stuff here. And I think I've got these down in your notes, and it's just recap the order. You can notice that the disciples obeyed, right? As soon as Jesus ascended into heaven and the angels gave them more direction, they did it. They went to Jerusalem, they waited, they did it with joy. They were in unity and fellowship. They spent time specifically in prayer. They viewed the circumstances of their lives, even the tough ones, the confusing and unsettling ones, through the lens of Scripture. They had the advancement of the gospel in mind, and they wanted to do the will of God. They knew that they could rely on the Lord, and so they could give it all over to Him. And then what did they do? They acted. They did it. They did stuff. If you've got a decision to make, and you feel stuck... Consider these things like they did. There's a great book. We've got a copy or two downstairs, and it's a short book. Um, recommended it to several high school and college-age students. It's called Just Do Something. And it it's kind of this same kind of uh, idea of trust the Lord and then do something. Because we can get stuck just kind of on a treadmill in life. Right? Um, I know I need to do something, but I haven't seen this obvious message from the Lord. It's not written in the sky, and so I'm just not going to do anything. And then that can create some other problems. And so I'm not saying to make a rash decision by any stretch of the imagination, but sometimes we need to just see what God says in His Word, make a decision, and go with it, and trust the Lord in it all. And that's what the disciples did. They, they took what they knew from the Word of God, and they didn't swing so far in one direction or the other. 
Don't swing too far in one direction and just make hasty decisions and not consider the things that we've talked about today. But don't swing too far in the other direction and get so bogged down with the weight of a decision that you never make a choice at all. Pray. Seek guidance in Christian community. Keep the advancement of the gospel in view. Pray some more. And then act. Act on what God is telling you to do. What might be confusing in your life even now, remember, is part of God's unfolding plan. You may not see it all, maybe never until glory, but you can trust the Lord in this, that it's still part of his plan. And then as we do these things, we're learning to trust more. As we see the faithfulness of God born out in our lives in these situations, we see and we learn to trust him more, believing that he will guide us through whatever comes, whatever outcome happens. I hope today we'll, we have seen, number one, that the Lord is working. He was working here even before the Spirit was there. He was giving guidance through His sovereign will. But that the people, the disciples, those who followed and loved Jesus, they wanted to do the will of God and they turned to the Scriptures and to prayer in order to find out what to do. I pray and hope that that's the same thing that we do as his people. And if you don't know the Lord, if you're saying, I need, I have big decisions in my life to make, but I don't think I could do this. The truth of the matter is, the way has been made. Christ, before he ascended, was killed on a cross for your sin. In John chapter 3, Jesus himself says that he's come not to condemn the world, but to save it, that it might be saved through him. And you can have eternal life by believing in Jesus. And so I would call you to repent of your sin. Call on his name and believe today. Let's pray. Lord, we have to be confronted with change. Because if we, if we, nothing changed, we would inevitably just get stuck in cruise control. And we would miss so much. And for your people, we don't want to be in cruise control, Lord. We don't want to swerve too far to the right or to the left either, Lord. We, we want to follow you where you're leading. And so I pray that as we're Faced with decisions, sometimes very big decisions, I pray that we would see how, how it was done here and that we would model our decision-making similarly. But Lord, if we have no foundation with Jesus, then our decisions are always going to be flawed. We're not going to have confidence in what we decide. And so I pray, Lord, that if, if, those are, if there are any listening who, who don't know you, that they might say, I just, I see, I can't seem to make a right decision. Jesus, I need you to change me in order to do that. And Lord, that they might repent of their sin, that they might call out on the name of Jesus and be saved and live their life according to his will and design. Lord, that's what we want to see. We want to see and understand your will and then live in light of it. We want to know it and to live it out. And so I pray for my brothers and sisters who know you, that they would, in their own lives, have good decision-making process. And when they're stuck, Lord, I pray that they would see from your word truth 
they would trust in your sovereign goodness and that they would act and give it to you. But not in a flippant way, not in a, well, I'll just deal with the consequences, but in a confident way knowing that you are in control. And we thank you for these things in Jesus' name. Amen.